Book Three, Chapter Eight of Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Robert Falconer by George MacDonald. Chapter Eight, My Own Acquaintance. It was after this that my own acquaintance with Falconer commenced. I had just come out of one of the theatres in the neighbourhood of the Strand unable to endure any longer the dreary combination of false magnanimity and real meanness imported from paris in the shape of a melodrama for the delectation of the london public i had turned northwards and was walking up one of the streets near covent garden when my attention was attracted to a woman who came out of a gin shop carrying a baby she went to the kennel and bent her head over ill with the poisonous stuff she had been drinking and while the woman stood in this degrading posture the poor white wasted baby was looking over her shoulder with the smile of a seraph perfectly unconscious of the hell around her children will see things as god sees them murmured a voice beside me i turned and saw a tall man with whose form i had already become a little familiar although i knew nothing of him standing almost at my elbow with his eyes fixed on the woman and the child and a strange smile of tenderness about his mouth as if he were blessing the little creature in his heart he too saw the wonder of the show typical of so much in the world indeed of the world itself the seemingly vile upholding and ministering to the life of the pure the gracious the fearless aware from his tone more than from his pronunciation that he was a fellow-countryman i ventured to speak to him and in a home dialect it's a wonderful sight it's the cake of ezekiel o'er again he looked at me sharply thought a moment and said you were going my way when you stopped i will walk with you if you will but what's to be done about it i said about what he returned about the child there i answered oh she is its mother he replied walking on what difference does that make i said all the difference in the world if god has given her that child what right have you or i to interfere but i verily believe from the look of the child she gives it gin god saves the world by the new blood the children to take her child from her would be to do what you could to damn her it doesn't look much like salvation there you mustn't interfere with god's thousand years any more than his one day are you sure she is the mother i asked yes i would not have left the child with her otherwise what would you have done with it got it into some orphan asylum or the foundling perhaps never he answered all those societies are wretched inventions for escape from the right way there ought not to be an orphan asylum in the kingdom. What? Would you put them all down, then? God forbid, but I would, if I could, make them all useless. How could you do that? I would merely enlighten the hearts of childless people as to their privileges. Which are? To be fathers and mothers to the fatherless and motherless. I have often wondered why more of them did not adopt children why don't they for various reasons which a real love to child nature would blow to the winds all comprised in this that such a child would not be their own child 
as if ever a child could be their own. That a child is God's is of rather more consequence than whether it is born of this or that couple. Their hearts would surely be glad when they went into heaven to have the angels of the little ones that always behold the face of their father coming round them, though they were not exactly their father and mother. I don't know what the passage you refer to means. Neither do I, but it must mean something, if he said it. Are you a clergyman? No, I am only a poor teacher of mathematics and poetry, shown up the back stairs into the nurseries of great houses. A grand chance, if I may use the word. I do try to wake a little enthusiasm in the sons and daughters, without much success, I fear. Will you come and see me, he said. With much pleasure, but as I have given you an answer, you owe me one. I do. Have you adopted a child? No. Then you have some of your own. No. Then excuse me, but why the warmth of your remarks on those who... I think I shall be able to satisfy you on that point, if we draw to each other. Meantime, I must leave you. Could you come tomorrow evening? With pleasure. We arranged the hour and parted. I saw him walk into a low public house and went home. At the time appointed, I rang the bell and was led by an elderly woman up the stair and shown into a large room on the first floor, poorly furnished and with many signs of bachelor carelessness. Mr. Falconer rose from an old hair-covered sofa to meet me as I entered. I will first tell my reader something of his personal appearance. He was considerably above six feet in height, square-shouldered, remarkably long in the arms, and his hands were uncommonly large and powerful. His head was large and covered with dark, wavy hair, lightly streaked with gray. His broad forehead projected over deep-sunk eyes that shone like black fire. His features, especially his Roman nose, were large and finely, though not delicately, modelled. His nostrils were remarkably large and flexible, with a tendency to slight motion. I found on further acquaintance that when he was excited, they expanded in a wild equine manner. The expression of his mouth was of tender power, crossed with humour. He kept his lips a little compressed, which gave a certain sternness to his countenance, but when this sternness dissolved in a smile, it was something enchanting. He was plainly rather shabbily clothed. No one could have guessed at his profession or social position. He came forward and received me cordially. After a little indifferent talk, he asked me if I had any other engagement for the evening. I never have any engagements, I answered, at least of a social kind. I am bird alone. I know next to nobody. Then perhaps you would not mind going out with me for a stroll. I shall be most happy, I answered. There was something about the man I found exceedingly attractive. I had very few friends, and there was besides something odd, almost romantic, in the beginning of an intercourse. I would see what would come of it. Then we'll have some supper first, said Mr. Falconer, and rang the bell while we ate our chops. I dare say you think it strange, my host said, that without the least claim on your acquaintance I should have asked you to come and see me, Mr. He stopped, smiling. My name is Gordon, Archie Gordon, I said. 
well then mr gordon i confess i have a design upon you but you will remember that you addressed me first you spoke first i said did i i did not say you spoke to me but you spoke i should not have ventured to make the remark i did make if i had not heard your voice first what design have you on me that will appear in due course now take a glass of wine and we'll set out we soon found ourselves in holborn and my companion led the way towards the city the evening was sultry and close nothing excites me more said mr falconer than a walk in the twilight through a crowded street do you find it affect you so i cannot speak as strongly as you do i replied but i perfectly understand what you mean why is it do you think partly i fancy because it is like the primordial chaos a concentrated tumult of undetermined possibilities the germs of infinite adventure and result are floating around you like a snowstorm you do not know what may arise in a moment and colour all your future out of this mass may suddenly start something marvellous or it may be something you have been looking for for years the same moment a fierce flash of lightning like a blue sword-blade a thousand times shattered quivered and palpitated above us leaving a thick darkness on the sense i heard my companion give a suppressed cry and saw him run up against a heavy drayman who was on the edge of the path guiding his horses with his long whip he begged the man's pardon put his hand to his head and murmured i shall know him now i was afraid for a moment that the lightning had struck him but he assured me there was nothing amiss he looked a little excited and confused however i should have forgotten the incident had he not told me afterwards when i had come to know him intimately that in the moment of that lightning flash he had had a strange experience he had seen the form of his father as he had seen him that sunday afternoon in the midst of the surrounding light he was as certain of the truth of the presentation as if a gradual revival of memory had brought with it the clear conviction of its own accuracy his explanation of the phenomenon was that in some cases all that prevents a vivid conception from assuming objectivity is the self-assertion of external objects the gradual approach of darkness cannot surprise and isolate the phantasm but the suddenness of the lightning could and did obliterating everything without and leaving that over which it had no power standing alone and therefore visible but i ventured to ask whence the minuteness of detail surpassing you say all that your memory could supply that i think was a quickening of the memory by the realism of the presentation excited by the vision it caught at its own past as it were and suddenly recalled that which it had forgotten in the rapidity of all pure mental action this at once took its part in the apparent objectivity to return to the narrative of my first evening in faulkner's company it was strange how insensible the street population was to the grandeur of the storm while the thunder was billowing and bellowing over and around us a hundred pins for one halfpenny bawled a man from the gutter with the importance of Caliostro. Evening star, telegraph, roared an ear-splitting urchin in my very face. I gave him a shove off the pavement. Ah, oh, don't do that, said Falconer. It only widens the crack between him and his fellows. Not much, but a little. 
You are right, I said. I won't do it again. The storm kept on intermittently, but the streets were rather more crowded than usual, notwithstanding. Look at that man in the woolen jacket, said Falconer. What a beautiful outline of face. There must be something noble in that man. I did not see him, I answered. I was taken up with a woman's face like that of a beautiful corpse. Its eyes were bright. There was gin in its brain. The streets swarmed with human faces gleaming past. It was a night of ghosts. There stood a man who had lost one arm, earnestly pumping bilge music out of an accordion with the other, holding it to his body with the stump. There was a woman, pale with hunger and gin, three matchboxes in one extended hand, and the other holding a baby to her breast. As we looked, the poor baby let go its hold, turned its little head, and smiled a wan, shriveled, old-fashioned smile in our faces. "'Another happy baby, you see, Mr. Gordon,' said Falconer. "'A child, fresh from God, finds its heaven where no one else would. The devil could drive a woman out of paradise, but the devil himself cannot drive the paradise out of a woman.' "'What can be done for them?' I said, and at the moment my eye fell upon a row of little children." from two to five years of age, seated upon the curbstone. They were chattering fast and apparently carrying on some game, as happy as if they had been in the fields. Wouldn't you like to take all those little grubby things and put them in a great tub and wash them clean, I said. They'd fight like spiders, rejoined Falconer. They're not fighting now. Then don't make them. It would be all useless. The probability is that you would only change the forms of the various evils, and possibly for worse. You would buy all that man's glue lizards, and that man's three-foot rules, and that man's dog collars and chains, at three times their value, that they might get more drunk than usual, and do nothing at all for their living tomorrow. What a happy London you would make if you were Sultan Haran, he added, laughing. You would put an end to poverty altogether, would you not? I did not reply at once. But I beg your pardon, he resumed. I am very rude. Not at all, I returned. I was only thinking how to answer you. They would be no worse, after all, than those who inherit property and lead idle lives. True, but they would be no better. Would you be content that your quondam poor should be no better off than the rich? What would they have gained thereby? Is there no truth in the words, blessed are the poor, a deeper truth than most Christians dare to see? Did you ever observe that there is not one word about the vices of the poor in the Bible, from beginning to end? But they have their vices. Indubitably, I am only stating a fact. The Bible is full enough of the vices of the rich. I make no comment. But don't you care for their sufferings? They are of secondary importance, quite. But if you had been as much amongst them as I, perhaps you would be of my opinion, that the poor are not, cannot possibly feel so wretched as they seem to us. They live in a climate, as it were, which is their own, by natural law, comply with it, and find it not altogether unfriendly. The Laplander will prefer his wastes to the rich fields of England, not merely from ignorance, but for the sake of certain blessings, amongst which he has been born and brought up. The blessedness of life depends far more on its interest than upon its comfort. 
the need of exertion and the doubt of success render life much more interesting to the poor than it is to those who unblessed with anxiety for the bread that perisheth waste their poor hearts about rank and reputation i thought such anxiety was represented as an evil in the new testament yes but it is a still greater evil to lose it in any other way than by faith in god you would remove the anxiety by destroying its cause god would remove it by lifting them above it by teaching them to trust in him and thus making them partakers of the divine nature poverty is a blessing when it makes men look up but you cannot say it does so always i cannot determine when where and how much but i am sure it does and i am confident that to free those hearts from it by any deed of yours would be to do them the greatest injury you could probably their want of foresight would prove the natural remedy speedily reducing them to their former condition not however without serious loss but will not this theory prove at last an anaesthetic rather than an anodyne i mean that although you may adopt it at first for refuge from the misery the sight of their condition occasions you there is surely a danger of its rendering you at least indifferent to it am i indifferent but you do not know me yet pardon my egotism there may be such danger every truth has its own danger or shadow assuredly i would have no less labour spent upon them but there can be no true labour done save in as far as we are fellow-labourers with god we must work with him not against him every one who works without believing that god is doing the best the absolute good for them is must be more or less thwarting god he would take the poor out of god's hands for others as for ourselves we must trust him if we could thoroughly understand anything that would be enough to prove it undivine and that which is but one step beyond our understanding must be in some of its relations as mysterious as if it were a hundred but through all this darkness above the poor at least i can see wonderful veins and fields of light and with the help of this partial vision i trust for the rest the only and greatest thing man is capable of is trust in god what then is a man to do for the poor how is he to work with god i asked he must be a man amongst them a man breathing the air of a higher life and therefore in all natural ways fulfilling his endless human relations to them whatever you do for them let your own being that is you in relation to them be the background that so you may be a link between them and god or rather i should say between them and the knowledge of god while falkner spoke his face grew grander and grander till at last it absolutely shone i felt that i walked with the man whose face was his genius of one thing i am pretty sure he resumed that the same recipe goethe gave for the enjoyment of life applies equally to all work do the thing that lies next to you that is all our business hurried results are worse than none we must force nothing but be partakers of the divine patience how long it took to make the cradle and we fret that the baby humanity is not reading euclid and plato even that it is not understanding the gospel of st john if there is one thing evident in the world's history it is that god hasteneth not 
all haste implies weakness time is his cheapest space and matter what they call the church militant is only at drill yet and a good many of the officers too not out of the awkward squad i am sure i for a private am not in the drill a man has to conquer himself and move with the rest by individual attention to his own duty to what mighty battlefields the recruit may yet be led he does not know meantime he has nearly enough to do with his goose-step while there is plenty of single combat skirmish and light cavalry work generally to get him ready for whatever is to follow i beg your pardon i am preaching eloquently i answered of some of the places into which faulkner led me that night i will attempt no description places blazing with lights and mirrors crowded with dancers billowing with music close and hot and full of the saddest of all sights the uninteresting faces of commonplace women there is a passion i said as we came out of one of these dreadful places that lingers about the heart like the odour of violets like a glimmering twilight on the borders of moonrise and there is a passion that wraps itself in the vapours of patchouli and coffins and streams from the eyes like gaslight from a tavern and yet the line is ill to draw between them it is very dreadful these are women they're in god's hands answered falconer he hasn't done with them yet shall it take less time to make a woman than to make a world is not the woman the greater she may have her ages of chaos her centuries of crawling slime yet rise a woman at last how much alike all those women were a family likeness alas which always strikes you first some of them looked quite modest there are great differences i do not know anything more touching than to see how a woman will sometimes wrap around her the last remnants of a soiled and ragged modesty it has moved me almost to tears to see such a one hanging her head in shame during the singing of a detestable song that poor thing's shame was precious in the eyes of the master surely could nothing be done for her i contrived to let her know where she would find a friend if she wanted to be good that is all you can do in such cases if the horrors of their life do not drive them out at such an open door you can do nothing else i fear for the time where are you going now may i ask into the city on business he added with a smile there will be nobody there so late nobody one would think you were the beadle of a city church mr gordon we came into a very narrow dirty street i do not know where it is a slatternly woman advanced from an open door and said mr falconer he looked at her for a moment why sarah have you come to this already he said never mind me sir it's no more than you told me to expect you knowed him better than i did leastways i'm an honest woman stick to that sarah and be good-tempered i'll have a try anyhow sir but there's a poor creature a-dying upstairs, and I'm afeard it'll go hard with her, for she throwed a bottle out of window this morning, sir. Would she like to see me? I'm afraid not. She's got lily-white. What's a sort of a reader reading that same Bible to her now? There can be no great harm in just looking in, he said, turning to me. I shall be happy to follow you anywhere, I returned she's awful ill sir cholera or summit 
said Sarah, as she led the way up the creaking stair. We half entered the room softly. Two or three women sat by the chimney, and another by a low bed, covered with a torn patchwork counterpane, spelling out a chapter in the Bible. We paused for a moment to hear what she was reading. Had the book been opened by chance or by design, it was the story of David and Bathsheba. Moans came from the bed, but the candle in a bottle by which the woman was reading was so placed that we could not see the sufferer. We stood still and did not interrupt the reading. Ha, 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 laughed a coarse voice from the side of the chimney. The saint you see was no better than some of the rest of us. I think he was a good deal worse just then, said Falconer, stepping forward. Gracious, there's Mr. Falconer, said another woman, rising and speaking in a flattering tone. Then, remarked the former speaker, there's a chance for old Maul and me yet. King David was a saint, wasn't he? Ha, ha! Yes, and you might be one, too, if you were as sorry for your faults as he was for his. Sorry, indeed. I'll be hanged if I'd be sorry. What have I to be sorry for? Where's the harm in turning an honest penny? I have took no man's wife, nor murdered himself neither. There's your saints. He was a rum one. Ha, ha! Falconer approached her, bent down, and whispered something. No one could hear but herself. She gave a smothered cry and was silent. "'Give me the book,' he said, turning towards the bed. "'I'll read you something better than that. "'I'll read about someone that never did anything wrong.' "'I don't believe there never was no such a man,' said the previous reader, as she handed him the book grudgingly. "'Not Jesus Christ himself,' said Falconer. "'Oh, I didn't know as you meant him.' "'Of course I meant him. "'There never was another.' I have heard tell, perhaps it was yourself, sir, as how he didn't come down upon us over hard after all, bless him. Falconer sat down on the side of the bed and read the story of Simon the Pharisee and the woman that was a sinner. When he ceased, the silence that followed was broken by a sob from somewhere in the room. The sick woman stopped her moaning and said, Turn down the leaf there, please, Lily White. We'll read it to me when you're gone. Then someone sobbed again. It was a young, slender girl with a face disfigured by the smallpox, and save for the tearful look it wore, poor and expressionless, Falconer said something gentle to her. "'Will he ever come again?' she sobbed. "'Who?' asked Falconer. "'Him, Jesus Christ. I've heard tell, I think, that he was to come again some day.' "'Why do you ask?' "'Because.' she said with a fresh burst of tears which rendered the words that followed unintelligible but she recovered herself in a few moments and as if finishing her sentence put her hand up to her poor thin colourless hair and said my hair ain't long enough to wipe his feet do you know what he would say to you my girl falconer asked no what would he say to me he would speak to me would he he would say, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Would he, though? Would he? She cried, starting up. Take me to him. Take me to him. Oh, I forget. He's dead. But he will come again, won't he? He was crucified four times, you know, and he must have come four times for that. Would they crucify him again, sir? No, they wouldn't crucify him now, in England at least. 
they would only laugh at him shake their heads at what he told them as much as to say it wasn't true and sneer and mock at him in some of the newspapers oh dear i've been very wicked but you won't be so any more no 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 i won't i won't i won't she talked hurriedly almost wildly the coarse old woman tapped her forehead with her finger falconer took the girl's hand what is your name he said nell what more nothing more well nelly said falconer how kind of you to call me nelly interrupted the poor girl they always calls me nell just nelly repeated falconer i will send a lady here to-morrow to take you away with her if you like and tell you how you must do to find jesus people always find him that want to find him the elderly woman with the rough voice who had not spoken since he whispered to her now interposed with a kind of cowed fierceness don't go putting humbug into my child's head now mr falconer ticing her away from her home everybody knows my nell's been an idiot since ever she was born poor child i ain't your child cried the girl passionately i ain't nobody's child you are god's child said falconer who stood looking on with his eyes shining but otherwise in a state of absolute composure am i am i you won't forget to send me sir that i won't he answered she turned instantly towards the woman and snapped her fingers in her face i don't care that for you she cried you dare to touch me now and i'll bite you come come nelly you mustn't be rude said falconer no sir i won't no more leastways to nobody but she it's she makes me do all the wicked things it is she snapped her fingers in her face again and then burst out crying she will leave you alone now i think said falconer she knows it will be quite as well for her not to cross me this he said very significantly as he turned to the door where he bade them a general good-night when we reached the street i was too bewildered to offer any remark falconer was the first to speak it always comes back upon me as if i had never known it before that women like some of those were the first to understand our lord some of them wouldn't have understood him any more than the pharisee though i'm not so sure of that of course there are great differences there are good and bad amongst them as in every class but one thing is clear to me that no indulgence of passion destroys the spiritual nature so much as respectable selfishness i am afraid you will not get society to agree with you i said foolishly i have no wish that society should agree with me for if it did it would be sure to do so upon the worst of principles it is better that society should be cruel than that it should call the horrible thing a trifle it would know nothing between through the city though it was only when we crossed one of the main thoroughfares that i knew where we were we came into the region of bethnal green from house to house till it grew very late falconer went and i went with him i will not linger on this part of our wanderings where i saw only dreadful darkness falconer always would see some glimmer of light all the people into whose houses we went knew him they were all in the depths of poverty many of them were respectable with some of them he had long talks in private while i waited near at length he said i think we had better be going home mr gordon you must be tired i am rather i answered but it doesn't matter for i have nothing to do to-morrow 
We shall get a cab, I dare say, before we go far. Not for me. I am not so tired but that I would rather walk, I said. Very well, he returned. Where do you live? I told him. I will take you the nearest way. You know London marvellously. Pretty well now, he answered. We were somewhere near Leather Lane about one o'clock. Suddenly we came upon two tiny children standing on the pavement, one on each side of the door of a public house. They could not have been more than two and three. They were sobbing a little, not much. The tiny creatures stood there, awfully awake and sleeping London, while even their own playmates were far off in the fairyland of dreams. This is the kind of thing, I said, that makes me doubt whether there be a God in heaven. That is only because he is down here, answered Falconer, taking such good care of us all that you can't see him. There is not a gin palace or yet lower hell in London in which a man or woman can be out of God. The whole being, love, there is nothing for you to set it against and judge it by, so you are driven to fancies. The house was closed, but there was light above the door. We went up to the children and spoke to them, but all we could make out was that Mammy was in there. One of them could not speak at all. Falconer knocked at the door. A good-natured-looking Irish woman opened it a little way and peeped out. "'Here are two children crying at your door, ma'am,' said Falconer. "'Ach, the darlings, they want their mother.' "'Do you know her, then?' True for you, and I do. She's a mighty decent woman in her way when the drunk's out of her, and very kind to the children. But once it she smells the drop of gin, her head's gone entirely. The purty creatures have waked up, and she not come home, and they've run out to look after her. Falconer stood a moment, as if thinking what would be best. The shriek of a woman rang through the night. There she is, said the Irish woman. For God's sake, don't let her get a hold of the darlings. She's raving mad. I seen her try to kill them once. The shrieks came nearer and nearer, and after a few moments the woman appeared in the moonlight, tossing her arms over her head and screaming with the despair for which she yet sought a defiant expression. Her head was uncovered and her hair flying in tangles. Her sleeves were torn and her gaunt arms looked awful in the moonlight. She stood in the middle of the street, crying again and again, with shrill laughter between. "'Nobody cares for me, and I care for nobody. Ha, ha, ha!' "'Mammy, Mammy!' cried the elder of the children, and ran towards her. The woman heard and rushed like a fury towards the child. Falconer, too, ran and caught up the child. The woman gave a howl and rushed towards the other. I caught up that one. With the last shriek she dashed her head against the wall of the public-house, dropped on the pavement, and lay still. Falconer set the child down, lifted the wasted form in his arms, and carried it into the house. The face was blue as that of a strangled corpse. She was dead. "'Was she a married woman?' Falconer asked. "'It's myself can't tell you, sir,' the Irish woman answered. "'I never saw anybody with her. "'Do you know where she lived?' "'No, sir. Somewhere not far off, though. "'The children will know.' But they stood staring at their mother, and we could get nothing out of them. They would not move from the corpse. I think we may appropriate this treasure trove, said Falconer, turning at last to me, and as he spoke, he took the eldest in his arms. Then turning to the woman, he gave her a card, saying, If any inquiry is made about them, there is my address. 
Will you take the other, Mr. Gordon? I obeyed. The children cried no more. After traversing a few streets, we found a cab and drove to a house in Queen Square, Bloomsbury. Falconer got out at the door of a large house and rung the bell, then got the children out and dismissed the cab. There we stood in the middle of the night in a silent, empty square, each with a child in his arms. In a few minutes we heard the bolts being withdrawn. The door opened and a tall, graceful form wrapped in a dressing gown appeared. "'I have brought you two babies, Miss St. John,' said Falconer. "'Can you take them?' "'To be sure I can,' she answered, and turned to lead the way. "'Bring them in.' We followed her into a little back room. She put down her candle and went straight to the cupboard, whence she brought a sponge-cake, from which she cut a large piece for each of the children. "'What a mercy they are, Robert, those little gates in the face. Red Lane leads direct to the heart.' she said, smiling, as if she rejoiced in the idea of taming the little wild angelets. "'Don't you stop. You are tired enough, I am sure. I will wake my maid, and will get them washed and put to bed at once.' She was closing the door when Faulkner said, "'Oh, Miss St. John,' he said, "'I was forgetting. Could you go down to number 13 in Soap Lane? You know it, don't you?' "'Yes, quite well. Ask for a girl called Nell, a plain, pockmarked young girl.' and take her away with you. When shall I go? Tomorrow morning, but I shall be in. Don't go till you see me. Good night. We took our leave without more ado. What a ladylike woman to be the matron of an asylum, I said. Falconer gave a little laugh. That is no asylum. It is a private house. And the lady is a lady of private means he answered who prefers bloomsbury to belgravia because it is easier to do noble work in it her heaven is on the confines of hell what will she do with the children kiss them and wash them and put them to bed and after that give them bread and milk in the morning and after that oh there's time enough we'll see there's only one thing she won't do what is that turn them out again a pause followed i cogitating are you a society then i asked at length no at least we don't use the word and certainly no other society would acknowledge us what are you then why should we be anything so long as we do our work don't you think there is some affectation in refusing a name yes if the name belongs to you not otherwise do you lay claim to no epitaph of any sort? We are a church, if you like. There. Who is your clergyman? Nobody. Where do you meet? Nowhere. What are your rules, then? We have none. What makes you a church? Divine service. What do you mean by that? The sort of thing you have seen tonight. What is your creed? Christ Jesus. But what do you believe about him? What we can. We count any belief in him, the smallest, better than any belief about him, the greatest, or about anything else besides. But we exclude no one. How do you manage without? By admitting no one. I cannot understand you. Well, then, we are an undefined company of people who have grown into human relations with each other naturally, through one attractive force, love for human beings, 
regarding them as human beings only in virtue of the divine in them but you must have some rules i insisted none whatever they would cause us only trouble we have nothing to take us from our work those that are most in earnest draw most together those that are on the outskirts have only to do nothing and they are free of us but we do sometimes ask people to help us not with money but who are the we why you if you will do anything and i and miss st john and twenty others and a great many more i don't know for every one is a centre to others it is our work that binds us together then when that stops you drop to pieces yes thank god we shall then die there will be no corporate body which means a bodied body or an unsold body left behind to simulate life and corrupt and work no end of disease we go to asses at once and leave no corpse for a ghoul to inhabit and make a vampire of when our spirit is dead our body is vanished then you won't last long then we oughtn't to last long but the work of the world could not go on so we are not the life of the world god is and when we fail he can and will send out more and better laborers into his harvest field it is a divine accident by which we are thus associated but surely the church must be otherwise constituted my dear sir you forget i said we were a church not the church do you belong to the church of england yes some of us why should we not inasmuch as she has faithfully preserved the holy records and traditions our obligations to her are infinite and to leave her would be to quarrel and start a thousand vermiculate questions as lord byron calls them for which life is too serious in my eyes i have no time for that then you count the church of england the church of england yes of the universe no that is constituted just like ours with the living working lord for the heart of it will you take me for a member no will you not if you may make yourself one if you will i will not speak a word to gain you i have shown you work do something and you are of christ's church we were almost at the door of my lodging and i was getting very weary in body and indeed in mind though i hope not in heart before we separated i ventured to say will you tell me why you invited me to come and see you forgive my presumption but you seem to seek acquaintance with me although you did make me address you first he laughed gently and answered in the words of the ancient mariner the moment that his face i see i know the man that must hear me to him my tale i teach without another word he shook hands with me and left me weary as i was i stood in the street until i could hear his footsteps no longer End. chapter eight